Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Comfort Free Conversations, and we're here to undo everything you think you know. Hello. 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 I'm going to put in my nice headphones real quick. Yeah, I was really looking forward to this. Oh, yeah, there I'm you excited. are. Awesome. I must say, uh, um, um, one of my uh, favorite pastimes is um, you and, and your husband's comments back and forth on each other's <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I was there for the celery comments. That was, that was pretty fun. Oh, he's ridiculous with the celery thing. Uh, Jason's not as much of a vegetable guy as I would like him to be in general. But uh, celery is his number one nemesis, cauliflower. You're silly. He's here listening. Uh, yeah, so it's just one of those things that, you know, in the same way that I've had to do with my daughter and kind of convince her, <coughs> excuse me, to eat things that she maybe doesn't want to sometimes, uh, I have to do the same for mm-hmm. Jason. But uh, roasting, <laughs> roasting each other is one of our favorite pastimes. Yeah, I was there for the joke diary too. <laughs> uh-huh. I, uh, that was that was fun. Jason says ridiculous things all the time, and I have a a running list uh, in the notes on my phone uh, of the ridiculous things that he says to me. So someday I'm going to compile a book of those. But he's a funny guy. So vengeance is like uh, is poisoning him with celery, right? <laughs> kind of, yeah. It's, I mean, it's really it's for his own good. So. Um, and also, it's, I don't know if you cook very much, but it's hard to make soup without celery. It's really an important yeah, ingredient. because it's the stock. Exactly. So, uh, right. yeah, he's just learned to live with it. I leave, I go as light on the celery as I possibly can, but, uh, mm-hmm. you stop, sorry, my dog. I, th- I feel like when I have my headphones in, my dog can hear just enough of the conversation that she gets excited about it, but she doesn't really know what's going on. <laughs> So I think she can sort of hear you and she's looking around to see where you are. <laughs> that makes sense. So, sorry about that. Yeah. So uh, I had caught one of your uh, talks about um, true crime. And mm-hmm. uh, I had, first, I've never really heard of true crime. I see it's a very part, uh, popular thing and when I went and looked up to it. But um, I'm kind of curious what got you into true crime in the first place, because you seem to have um, invested interests kind of. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say like growing up, we watched shows like Unsolved Mysteries and things like that. And so uh, even as a pretty young child, I was always kind of interested in, uh, you know, and America's Most Wanted was a really popular show when I was a kid. And that was one where, you know, John Walsh would profile these uh, these crimes where the perpetrator was on the loose and America had this, you know, was called to action to excuse me to uh help solve these crimes and they were able to uh thanks to that tv program they they caught a lot of uh criminals and so i kind of grew up watching shows like that and i've always been sort of interested my mom is also kind of a true crime fan and my dad was as well so i kind of just grew up watching that sort of stuff um and true Mm -hmm. crime has has been kind of a huge thing in the um in the more modern times through like the the serial podcast, which was a huge hit. Um, And then, you know, there's a lot of uh, like making a murderer on Netflix, things like that. So um, Mm. it's a really, it's a a 
genre that has exploded in popularity over the past probably 10 years. Um, and so I, um, I actually co-created a podcast, uh, that's true crime podcast and, uh, did a lot of writing for them and stuff like that. So. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, uh, documentaries and things of that nature about, um, about that kind of stuff have blown up. I have a lot of, like a lot of my friends that I don't know well because they're quiet. Um, they're interested in very uh, dynamic things like that. Like I had a friend, she never spoke, but she loves everything. Like um, what was the big one? Ted, Teddy, Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was really big on that and all, she was very excited when all that stuff come out. So it kind of made me curious. Okay. So what's the interest here? But I guess you get to see a very broad spectrum of like, psychology like looking and people when you get when you watch stuff like that so I can see the interest it it, it's very interesting like why do people do the things that they do and kind of gives you an opinion about about our justice system like how we how we handle things and Mm -hmm. yeah well and it it also lets you see that how uh, advances in uh, science and technology have really uh, given investigators all of these new tools to solve cold cases. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the case of the Golden State Killer, but uh, he was responsible for uh, more than 50 rapes and 13 murders uh, that took place uh, in California over the 1970s and 80s. Uh, And he was uh, captured through advances in DNA technology uh, just a couple of years ago. He was like a, they never probably would have caught him uh, if it weren't for the advances in DNA technology. So things like that, I think, are very interesting. I'm doing a talk uh, this weekend about uh, whether or not you really can get away with murder anymore um, in this age of, you know, all these cold cases being solved and things like that. So I'm also very interested in that. It's very funny that you said that because when you mentioned the advancement of technology, the first kind of thought that I had, I was like, yeah, watching that kind of stuff makes me feel like I should never attempt anything. (laughs) Like I am going (laughs) to be a law abiding citizen. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of discussion about whether about the the privacy implications of, uh, for example, in the case of the Golden State Killer, what they did was they took the DNA samples that they had from crime scenes and they built Mm -hmm. a profile and compared it against uh, existing profiles that people had put on like an ancestry database uh, mm-hmm. and they use that to sort of build out a family tree and figure out who the killer was based on the relatives of theirs and distant like sixth cousins or something like that who had uh, contributed their DNA to these ancestry databases so there's some uh, discussion over whether that's an invasion of privacy and things like that so you know it's got a lot of really interesting implications that's crazy. Do you, so you're saying they use the portfolio of other like ancestral DNA to kind of build a case for for someone Correct. down the line? Yeah. So wow. let's say like you do like a 23andMe or an Ancestry.com or something like that. And you swap your cheek and send it away and they tell you that you're, you know, 45% from this country and this and that and whatever. Um, and so people have the option to then take those uh take that ancestry information and upload it onto a public genealogy database. This can connect you with distant family members that you, you've not been aware of before and things like that. So the investigators used one of these public ancestry databases where all of the information had been uh, compiled by people who voluntarily turned it over. And they were able to use that ancestry information to, uh, to narrow down who their suspect might be. 
Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's amazing technology, um, but it does raise some privacy implications. For me personally, I think that if there is a, a, a rapist murderer in my family tree, I hope they get mm-hmm. him. You know what I mean? Like, that's mm-hmm. just me. So. What yeah. do you mean by that? You say you say you hope they catch them? Yep, absolutely. Well, so yeah, I, would happily, I would happily turn over my DNA for such a purpose. I think I would have to agree. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I have to agree with you there. So, uh, so kind of the thing that I'm thinking about, like, and the importance of a talk like this, um, is it doesn't. It has a lot of implications, and I really like the quote um, that I put on. I put it on Instagram. Actually, it was talking about if we don't have justice everywhere, then we're not really going to have justice anywhere in particular. So, for me, when I think of criminals, I don't think of just people who are in prison cells. I think of people who walk the streets every day who have been caught in ambiguous situations, right? And so not just necessarily, um, not just necessarily politically speaking about um, prison, but also philosophically speaking about how do we make general progression in, in morality in society and continue to, you know, evolve in our ethics and our, in our morals and stuff like that. And so I think it has a lot of implications on even just day-to-day life. I agree with that. Uh, in my yeah. research for this talk, I did some reading about uh, our criminal justice system and who is incarcerated in America and who do we execute in America. And among and, you know, like the the people who are eligible for capital punishment are a really small uh, slice of the overall prison population. Uh, most people who are in jail are in jail for, you know, drug offenses, nonviolent crimes, et cetera. Um, and so when we look at the way that we treat those people in our justice system, it's really alarming. And it's sort of a, it's a system that just feeds people through and back into uh, itself, in my opinion. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. <laughs> um, there's a documentary. Um, it's very popular on Netflix. Um, a lot of people know about it by now. The 13th Amendment. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. And it's so good. Yeah, it's really good. It's so good. And, I, and, and with the events going on, like especially yesterday, with the Capitol, it mm-hmm. really had me thinking like, wow, um, I don't know how, whatever thought pattern that I followed, but I just came to this place where, when I was thinking about prison and how they're really, their goal is to make you three fifths of a person. Like when you mm-hmm. go to prison and you come out of, whether you come out of the system or not, you are not a whole person. You are, you are still three fifths of a person like, like, like you were when you were slave property. Um, and I, I think that's that's crazy. Like we and I and that goes back to the implications that I think that it has when someone rejoins society or something like that. You're right. It's not to re- rehabilitate at all. It's to commodify uh, for labor and things like that. Absolutely. And that's why you see such a high uh, rate of recidivism that so many people who uh, commit crimes and then are released end up back uh, in prison in short order um, because we don't instead of taking the time that someone is incarcerated excuse me, and using that time to uh, give them the the tools that they need to set their life on a better track and keep themselves out of prison in the future. We just lock them in a cage with other people that have committed crimes uh, and really don't do anything with them. Uh, I think one of the statistics I read that was like uh, half a million people every year or something like that are uh, incarcerated for drug offenses. And only 11% mm-hmm. of those are given any sort of uh, 
uh, treatment for their addictions. Wow. <clears throat> so, you know, when you just look at it in the most basic of terms, that you're taking these people that uh, many of them are, you know, are sick. If, if we recognize that uh, addiction to drugs is an illness, then we're taking these people who are sick and not giving them any sort of treatment to, to make them well. Uh, we're just sort of locking them away and, you know, what, it, what will be will be. And so I think that's right. It's, it's a terrible commentary on our uh, society in America and the way that we are treated by our government and the way that we allow uh, each other to be treated. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, and, and it's, it, it spills into so many areas, like even like healthcare and like mm-hmm. when COVID really hit, what was happening in the prison system um, and things of that nature. It's just very drastic. It's like they're very dis- discarded. But I think not even just sy- systemically, right? This isn't even mm-hmm. just a systemic issue. This is a personal issue because when you get into complicated talks like the death penalty and things like that, um, it often is very deeply ingrained in our personal view. Like, like for example, um, it's and, and I'm not stating an opinion here for those listening. I'm just stating mm-hmm. what, what people think. But it's like, oh, you, you're a rapist. Yes, he, he deserves to die. Or, or a pedophile or molestation. Like, put him to death. A murderer. You know, yeah. They, well, they killed. They deserve to die. And I think, um, man, like... That's 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 a very critical thing. And I think I think it deserves to be examined personally. I think it deserves to be examined. I do, too. And I know um, I listened to your talk with Jason and I know you spoke uh, a little bit about uh, your uh, your growing up in the church and things like that. And I think that uh, among uh, a lot of religious uh, communities, people still support the death penalty, which is really puzzling to me. Because to me, it seems antithetical to uh, what the Bible teaches about, uh, you know, forgiveness and grace and things like that, that instead of uh, seeking to uh, rehabilitate people, we are so quick Mm -hmm. to focus on retribution. Yeah. Uh, And I think and I think that goes again, like to kind of the one of the purposes or my goals of what I'm doing. But um, I don't think people really understand the depth of what it was teaching, like people in that regard when you I think we're a lot of us are ignorant and I think which is kind of why I got the brand name come for free I think we pursue truth or religion or spirituality a lot of times not for truth itself but for the comfort that it provides which opens the door right away for uh plenty of misunderstandings and um uh, you know you rely reliving arriving to conclusions that more so fit your opinion than necessarily something that is just Right. Um, instead of instead of seeking the truth, you seek to affirm what you already believe to be the truth. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that happens so much. And so going mm-hmm. to like the hate the, and even in our own community, I think people need to remember that don't, you can't even you can't look at, for example, something like Christianity as simply Christian. It's a it's 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 a privilege. It's to be American, to be Christian and American. I would consider it a form of privilege because oh, it's absolutely. the, right. And I think that's one of the ways that we see that happen is when, you know, people are quick to jump into those very um, conformed and normalized ideas and stand behind them mm-hmm. without, you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, like the, there's one of the, uh, the tenets of our American democracy is the freedom of religion. And that means that, you know, you're free to, to, uh, believe and practice what you choose for yourself. 
Um, and that's a, a privilege that's not afforded to people all over the world that, you know, is, um, you know, one of the things that makes America exceptional. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. so I'm kind of curious, like, so uh, I want to get into some of some of the nitty gritties. <clears throat> uh, one of the things that I think is is very impactful when you're considering like equity or equality is do all people deserve that? And I think that's a big question that we have. It's like, you are human until you agree to give up your human right by committing this offense, right? I think that's a, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say, I've been sort of surveying some of my own personal friends. You know, what do you think about the death penalty? Do you think that it's, uh, it's okay in some cases, et cetera, et cetera. And I would say that probably the prevailing opinion that I got was that, you know, I'm opposed to the death penalty, except. And, mm. uh, and for me, you know, that's, a, it's a tricky spot to be in. For me personally, I'll say I'm opposed to the death penalty full stop across the board. I don't think that we uh, as a society should be complicit in the killing of anyone, regardless of whether we think they deserve it or not. Um, and right. I say that mostly because I don't think that the, our criminal justice system is infallible in any way. Uh, and mm-hmm. that I know that uh, from looking up these statistics, <clears throat> here's one for you. Since 1973, uh, 156 people have been exonerated from death row. So that's one, approximately one for every 10 people that have been executed. We've executed about 1,500 people in that time period. Um, and at least seven of the people that have been executed were uh, later proven to be probably innocent of the crimes for which they were convicted and killed. So for me... Right even those seven people uh, is way too much. So Absolutely. I, am, I don't think that, uh, I don't think that the, the severity of the crime that someone committed is justification for them turning around and doing essentially the same thing to them. Absolutely. And there's a movie about this. It has Michael B. Jordan in it and Jamie Foxx. And so oh, in the movie, so Jamie Foxx, it's so good. Yes. And I think it, and it saddens me because it was not a popular movie. It was yeah. not a popular film. It did not do well in the box office. And I think that says a lot about what we care about. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, the movie's called Just Mercy. And it's based on uh, a true story. And it's a, a fantastic movie. I highly recommend it. You all should check it out. It's called Just Mercy. Absolutely. Um, and, boy, it's it's very sad and um it really makes you think and i do agree that movies like that you know like they're they're hard to watch in a way because it makes you really examine the things that you think and believe and when it's humanized in a way where it's broken down to one person and their story and uh Mm -hmm. and how all of those broad sweeping decisions that we make as a society that this is okay and if you do this you deserve that um you know it, it breaks it down and you really see uh how problematic that can be. So, so so what would you say your opinions are? Like, let's talk about like, um, like, for example, people that we have had very low success at rehabilitation and what like, for example, let's say serial killers, um, psychopaths, narcissists, you know, mass murderers, things of that nature. What, What's kind of your philosophy on that? I want to, because I have some opinions about it and I'll share. Um, sure. But I'm, I'm well, and just really quickly, I want to say that we, we see your messages uh, piling up and we are going to get to them at some point, but we wanted to take a little bit of time here 
to sort of discuss this first, and then we'll dig into the messages. So just be patient with us. We will get to them um, a bit later in this talk. Um, so oh, thank you for that. No problem. Just we appreciate you listening, uh, and we will get to you. Um, we're not ignoring you, I promise. So for me, what I think is that when you look at the population uh, of American prisoners, that uh, mm -hmm. a lot of them are there for nonviolent crimes, for drug offenses, et cetera, et cetera. So mm -hmm. if we focused on taking those people out of the prison system and instead mm -hmm. working to rehabilitate those people, uh, give them the drug treatment that they need, the skills that they need to be productive members of society, then that leaves mm -hmm. enough space and resources within our prison system to house the worst of the worst, the rapists, the murderers, you know, the real psychopaths. Um, I don't mm -hmm. feel like, you know, I do, I acknowledge that there are some people that are probably beyond redemption at this point. Um, and so for those people, uh, I think that jail is the right place for them. Um, but I think that in an, but I don't, again, that doesn't make me uh, agree with the death penalty because I think that by executing those people, we are sort of uh, endorsing that killing is okay in some circumstances, which I don't agree with. So, mm. um, so yeah, I think that those people belong in jail. And I think even if they are sentenced to life in prison, that there still should be opportunities for them in prison to try to better themselves in whatever way they can through education or therapy, you know, even if they're never to be released back into society. Um, I think there can still be ways that we can try to help the people who are willing uh, and open to receiving help, that they should be given the opportunity to be helped. Absolutely. And I, I have to say that I completely agree with m everything that you've said up, up until this point. I think um, there's so many opportunities there. Like, for example, let's say you first, we, it would give us a larger opportunity to focus on the most problematic philosophies in society. Like how did people arrive at this conclusion that this was okay or this was something that they were going to do and commit. And even if we didn't make perfect progress on them, it gives us more data, right? Like, mm -hmm. like what worked, what did not work? What did this, did this go well, right? Did this treatment, was it effective over the span of the life sentence that they serve and all of that, which could uh, drastically affect the future and how we deal with them? Because for example, I had a really good talk with someone who was certified in behavioral therapy. And one of the things they were saying is like, there's the, t the topic on things such as narcissism and things like that are, are very ambiguous. There's not a lot of data there. Um, there's not a lot of uh, ultimate conclusions that people have reached. Right. And I, I think that's mm -hmm. just from a lack of experience dealing with it and, uh, or successfully treating it. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think also when you wind it back even further, um, what I've learned from, uh, from, reading and writing about true crime for uh, all of this time is that a lot of people uh, become those uh, killers, those irredeemable sociopaths, psychopaths, because of serious trauma that, uh, that they endured as young children, or, you know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of environmental aspects that contribute. And so if you wind it back even further, there's a lot that we could be doing as a society to prevent these people from, um, from becoming what they've become. And that comes from, you know, more robust mental health systems, uh, early intervention for uh, young people that, ex that exhibit uh, 
early warning signs of things like this, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, and that, that kind of raises up um, a question to get into, uh, mm-hmm. like regarding like how we define necessarily like love, um, mm-hmm. which I think has big implications on this. And I think this is one of the big dangers uh, like, the, like, for example, how you consider uh, love, I think, is powerful. If you view it as affection, right, if, if it's merely affection, then, of course, you're not going to be up and excited to be affectionate towards uh, uh, a criminal or like a, a rapist or a pedophile. But what about what about just simply uh, simply just giving them what they need accountability and things of that nature no one's saying that you have to be fond of the things or the actions that they committed right Mm -hmm. but and i think and i think that's a a powerful thing particularly because i don't think the person themselves is the issue it's it's like you said it's the trauma that they've endured it's the things that they've come to face and encounter um in their lives um and so that was that was one that was a case that i really wanted to focus on i think there's like a couple tiers and categories of it. One is like the psychological anomalies of people who end up in situations that we don't know how to treat well, right? Where mm-hmm. they continue to show very exaggerated and extreme behavior. Another category, which is kind of what I think we're in right now, is when the, the, stimu- the stimulus or the motivation behind the things that they're doing are from a severe and serious trauma. And so I mm-hmm. think there's this a very ambiguous balance of a victim and a villain all in the same go. And I think that's where, that's where we have it very poorly defined. If, um, if that makes sense. I, I, it does totally. Um, You know, I think that, that when you, when you scratch the surface of what makes people commit the crimes that they do uh, a lot of times, you know, people will uh, commit robberies and burglaries and things like that out of desperation because they, they need money. They don't, they don't see another path to getting the things that they need. Um, And so, you know, like there's the roots of a lot of these problems are in, you know, poverty, lack of mental health services, uh, lack of uh, employment opportunities. And this is also something that contributes greatly to the recidivism rate. Uh, A lot of people end up back in jail because once you've been in jail, it becomes much harder to get a job uh, once you're released and things like that. So I think there are a lot of societal issues that contribute to our uh, unbelievably huge prison population and the amount of people who uh, who go to jail <clears throat> over and over and over. Mm. So I, I really think that a lot of the, the responsibility and the blame uh, lies on the shoulders of our society and the things that we value uh, in America and the things that we don't. Absolutely. Um, and so personally, uh, one of the views that I have pertaining to what we're talking about is even in, and, and this is, this is going to be very controversial and I think we'll need to dig into it more when I say this and I already know what I'm gearing myself up for, but I believe we should aim to be able to re-implement, uh, serious offenders, uh, that, that have shown rehabilitation back into society. Um, let's mm-hmm. say a murderer, let's say. Um, a previous offender, like a, of a sexual assault or something of that nature. Uh, and so th- I just wanted to state my opinion. So I'm not letting you take all the vulnerability on the p- opinions I'm asking you to share. So do you agree? Do you disagree? Oh, yeah. And I'll give you a good example of that. Uh, Leslie Van Houten, who was one of the Manson family killers, 
Uh, she was indisputably, uh, you know, committed terrible crimes, uh, brutal murders. She was sentenced to death and then uh, the Supreme Court overturned the death penalty. So she and many others had their death sentences commuted to life in prison. Um, so she's serving life in prison. She is now 71 years old uh, and one of the longest serving female inmates in the state of California. Uh, she has been recommended for parole by the parole board four times now. Um, she has educated herself. She's been a model prisoner. She's done a lot to sort of turn her life around from the brutal crimes that she committed. Admittedly brutal. No, there's no dispute that what she did was terrible. But now four times she has been recommended by the parole board for release. And four times it's been denied by the governor. So to wow. me, and it's because it's not a politically advantageous thing to be the governor who released one of the Manson family killers right, is what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. Do I think that as a 71-year-old woman who spent the vast majority of her time in prison that she presents a real danger to society? No. But I think that people can't get past what she did to get into prison. And so mm -hmm. they're not willing to extend an opportunity to her to, uh, to be released and, you know, try to be a, a contributing member of society. So... And, and I think that's a good comment. And I think that, and, and that's where I was saying it's a systemic issue, but it's also extremely mm -hmm. personal. So like, what, what is it about us? What is it about us that, that is unwilling to for, forgive things like that for people who have demonstrated uh, uh, redemption? Like people who have demonstrated that I am going to redeem myself for the rest of my life for the things that I've committed. Why are we so hell bent on forgiving them or allowing them to recuperate into a functioning society? I mean, I think for me personally, the, the, the argument that I hear most often is that, well, the person that was killed lost their opportunity to live their life. So why should the killer then be granted an opportunity at any point? So, mm. um, you know, it's, it's a valid argument. I understand why people feel that way. And the other thing that I often hear is what if it was your loved one who was killed? Would you still want that their killer to be given an opportunity for freedom? And so of mm -hmm. course, you know, this is the reason why, you know, if your own loved one is killed, you're not given an opportunity to serve on the jury that uh, determines the fate of the person convicted of killing them. When you're too close to a situation, it's hard for you to look at it in an objective way. Uh, so right. when you take that out of it and you look at what is the greater good to society, um, I mm -hmm. think you have to, for me, it's about coming to terms with the fact that there's nothing you can do to undo the damage caused by that person. You can't right. bring back the person that they killed. Uh, so you have to sort of look at it as, is it worth throwing away two lives or do we have an opportunity to really, um, to prove to to make it better, to sort of restore, I don't know. Does that make sense? So you, you, I'm not sure. Yeah, so we're kind of, so we're kind of talking about two things. We're kind of talking about someone's pr present appearance, right? But then we're also talking about the potential for, uh, to, that could be realized in a, in a positive way. And so, so can we just discount this potential for good, right? Because if we discount mm -hmm. that potential for good and it would have been realized, it's the same thing as killing that good, right? It's the same thing as snuffing it out. And so mm -hmm. even though this person's uh, previously, this life cannot be gained again, we cannot regain this life. Uh, 
what about what this person, what about if part of their redemption is to contribute, right? The, the good potential that they have in, a, in another way that could drastically affect someone's life or potentially maybe stop a future murder from someone who they understand because they were like-minded or, or you, it's just, you never know. Right. So in, in criminal justice, it's, it's called, it's the concept of reconciliation. Um, right. So the, you can't, because you can't ever undo what's been done. You have to find a way to reconcile the fact that the, your loved one is gone. There, nothing is going to bring them back. So then what is the way that we can move forward from there in the most positive way? Some people can never get to the point where they are uh, willing or able to forgive. And, you know, that's, that's an individual, forgiveness is a really individual choice. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it, when you talk about it in, in terms of like the religion, um, you know, uh, in, you know, the, the Bible calls for us to forgive as we've been forgiven and things like that. But even for people who are not religious, uh, you know, there's a real value in being able to sort of find that peace, even in the most horrible of circumstances. So Absolutely. again, you know, I don't see that, um, I don't feel like the, the choice of, what should happen to a criminal uh, should be left entirely up to the, the loved ones of the, their victim. Mm -hmm. Because again, I feel like it puts you too close to it. So when we look at it as a society, what is best for the collective us? I don't think that locking people away and throwing away the key is, uh, is necessarily always or usually the right choice. And and I completely agree. And, you know, you talking on a, like um, the religious standpoint of, you know, the whole idea of forgive your neighbor or turn the other cheek. Right. Um, and, and I want to kind of get into that because I believe this whole idea of philosophy of turn the other cheek is very powerful and misunderstood completely. And there's two examples right. I want to give. One example that I want to give is when there's a story in the Bible where there's this there's Peter and Jesus is about to be taken away for crucifixion. And the, the person just walks up to, to Jesus and Peter's like, yo, what you doing? Cuts his ear off. So Jesus in the in the story that happens, Jesus takes his ear, heals him and goes to uh, goes away with them. And so most people take that as like this pacifistic view of as protection is not good and we should never resort to violence and anything like that. But I don't think that was the primary motive. I think mm -hmm. the primary motive was he was not attacking the person because the person themselves was not the issue. It was the philosophy that they were carrying. Um, and that's kind of a statement that I was making um, yesterday when with all of the madness going on. Um, and I'm going to I'm going to get people very politically triggered here. But I do not. <laughs> I don't think it's OK to isolate yourself from opinions and uh, political beliefs that you don't like because at the end of the day, that person, even if you isolate yourself from their dangerous opinions, they're going to go on to live, to pass on their opinions to other people. So their philosophy will live on after their death and it will continue to spread and grow. I think people, we, we say that, you know, our fight is not physical, right? And I think people mm -hmm. limit that to just words, but your fight isn't even really just with words or ideas. It's also about character. Mm -hmm. Like, like if, if I had a controversial belief and it bothered you, but you knew me to be a very integral person, I can almost guarantee part of you will be curious as to what lets me continue to believe this controversial thing. Right. Oh, uh, um, uh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So it's a, it's a powerful incentive 
to not accept, not accept, not shut up when uh, dangerous topics come up, but to speak on them. Right. Because you have social agency as a person of integrity, as a person of character that can impact the next person around you. And I think that's the real goal of turning the other cheek, because if I hit you back, I'm not destroying the philosophy that created you. I'm feeding it. I'm yep. adding to it. I'm contributing. Yep. And, and, and I feel the same way about the prison system. And I think that's a very dangerous way that we consider love. Love is not, in my opinion, it's not an emotion and it's not necessarily an action either. It's the sustenance, like you said, of the, the greater good of life itself. Like if it endorses life, then it is of the same essence as love. Right. And so when I say mm-hmm. that, I think people are very disgusted by loving someone who hates you or loving someone who's committed an atrocity against you because they they conflate it with affection and it's not the same. Well, right. And I think that that's you know, the real challenge, um, and <clears throat> excuse me, is that if you view love as, as an, an action and a way of life, it's very easy to love the lovable, but it's very mm-hmm. difficult to extend that same love and grace to the unlovable. Um, and I think that is part of where we see the breakdown, even in situations like yesterday, that it's easy mm-hmm. to write off, uh, you know, these, these Trump supporters as ignorant and, you know, um, and all of these things. But when you boil it down to what makes people believe the things that they believe, um, I think mm-hmm. it's so important that what we've seen is a breakdown of the, the, the willingness and the eagerness to find common ground with people. Uh, and mm-hmm. instead, we've sort of embraced this division, this us versus them, this, you know, we believe this thing. And if you don't believe this thing, then you're wrong, you're ignorant, you're all of, you know, you're irredeemable in some way. Um, and that's right. what leads to what we saw yesterday. Um, I just want to take yeah. a quick second again to thank everybody for, for listening and participating. We do see your messages and we will get to them a little bit later in this talk. But uh, but please know that we see them and we're not uh, actively ignoring you. Just hang tight with us. We will be getting to your messages in a little while here. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's that's good. That's good. I'm glad I kind of glad we kind of touched base on that. Um, and see that in the same light. So something else that I, I want to talk about is it's in the same vein. So let's let's go. Let's switch from the perspective of the villain, right? Of the mm-hmm. offender themselves, right? And let's let's go into the eyes of the victim, right? What could we do, right? Because it's not just our responsibility to redeem the villain, but it's also our responsibility to protect the victim. So for people who have been molested or people who have been raped or or they had a loved one close to them murdered or any kind of serious offense against them like what what could we do like how, let's let's let I just want to take a minute to kind of set mm-hmm. the environment of their perspective <clears throat> and then kind of get into some discussion revolving around that I mean I think my best answer would be that uh when you look at it at, when you take it to like a really big picture that mm-hmm. the best thing that we can do is try to build a society where those things happen less because there are because there are resources and we are intervening to prevent people from becoming you know rapists and molesters and things like that and where we have systems in place to recognize the early warning signs of those things and take action uh before the problem becomes uh much more difficult to solve so uh, you know a lot of those things i think uh could be addressed through more robust mental health services Mm -hmm. uh things like that and you know yeah go ahead ahead. sorry 
I was just going to, once, once the damage is done, it's hard to say, uh, you know, how you, how you make it okay for people Mm. who have lived through things that are, you know, really not okay. Right. Absolutely. And, and they're, they're not okay. And, and I I don't Mm. want to ever make it seem like it's okay. No one is ever going to say that what happened to you or the offense that someone else committed towards you is okay. But the argument is how can we make sure you never happen again, right? What happened to you never happens again. So I definitely agree with you on that. Um, And I kind of wanted to just clarify, you know, just for definition sake, the difference between uh, um, forgiveness and reconciliation, right? I don't have to, just because I have forgive you or I choose to move on with my life, does not mean that I accept you back, right? It doesn't mean that I lessen any of the boundaries that I put in place to protect myself. It doesn't mean that I have to accept you. I think the power in forgiveness and to equip, and and I'm not setting this as an obligation for anyone who's been offended. This is not your obligation, but it is a choice. And I want it to be in a choice of empowerment. But I think um, there's a book uh, it's got an interesting, it's got a couple interesting points. Um, it's called the four agreements. And one of the things is to not take anything personal. And so sort of the guideline that it's setting about not taking anything personal is particularly because um, it's kind of narcissistic to think that you're the sole motivation of any action that you may receive, right? So mm-hmm. a person could have like had a bad cup of coffee and choose to lash out at you about it. And it literally has nothing to do with you, but it's about the cup of coffee. And I know I'm trivializing the idea here, but let's say uh, there's a quote in the book and it says, even if I took a gun and pointed it to your head, you cannot take it directly personal because what, like you said, the trauma that could have happened in someone's life or some neurological condition, basically saying the action that I did to you, the stage for that was set before you ever were the person who received it, if that makes sense. Right. right. It would have so just been a, kinda... it would have just been a gun pointed at somebody else's head uh, if it wasn't yours. Right. So. Right. Becomes, Absolutely. Yeah. So it, it you kind of accept all of this negative uh, uh, thoughts that because you feel like this was directed as you. Right. And so one of the things of the powers of forgiveness is one, it um, it's it's an acceptance that this happened to you. And that's, I think, one of the hardest parts, accepting that something like this happened to you, um, accepting that it's not limited to to you. Right. It's not it's not aiming to take away your agency or your life. Right. And mm-hmm. that it wasn't personal. I think that's very healing, not for the other person. It's not for the for the criminal offenses as sake at all, but it's more so for you to let go of the anxiety and the tension and the stress that is constantly weighing on you from this very drastic, heavy thing that's happened to you. Um, I just agree. to clarify, and I think that, I think that forgiveness is a thing. I think that forgiveness is a thing that you do for yourself more than for Absolutely. the other person. Uh, and so you, when you look at it as, you know, like you forgive this person so that they don't hold that weight and power in your own life, then uh, mm-hmm. it, maybe that helps make it a little bit easier to accept that, you know, because I can understand that it would feel potentially like a, like a betrayal. If, if the, Absolutely. the criminal justice system does not, you know, uh, effectively punish this person that has uh, wronged you or your family, then it can feel like you've been let down, not, you know, uh, again, after experiencing this terrible crime. 
Um, and so I think that when we look at it, and again, I feel like there are some people that absolutely belong in prison, uh, but I feel like the way that we treat those people when they get to prison is really something that we need to examine. That even people who have committed uh, awful crimes, uh, if we give mm-hmm. them the ability to uh, to really uh, understand where they've gone wrong, then uh, that's really beneficial to society as a whole. And we can achieve those things through, you know, therapy and rehabilitation. And rehabilitation doesn't always mean releasing them back into society. But I do mm-hmm. think that we're we're too quick to give up on people who potentially could be redeemed. Absolutely. And and I and I agree with you on that. And and then the other thing that I'm thinking about uh pertaining to this is other future offenders. Cause cause what mm-hmm. what am I thinking? Um self-preservation, right? So mm-hmm. you're fighting so I think and that's a big thing, self-preservation. Uh people who are uh victims in certain situations, they're looking to preserve themselves, but they're not the only ones. So are the so are the offenders. They're mm-hmm. still looking for self-preservation. So I think one of the complex ideas is that we want to encourage people to be willing to um, be willing to come forward with the things that they've committed, the, the atrocities that they've committed. But like, what are the incentives to come and, and step up to something that you did that was very that was very bad or or very serious offense what are the incentives to come up if redemption isn't an option right yeah why would you acknowledge the wrong and what you've done if there's no path forward from that if it's just going to leave you in the same hopeless spot um then there's no incentive to sort of work on yourself if if society has basically said through the way that you've been treated uh that there's no hope for you, we give up on you, then why would you not give up on yourself? Uh, A lot of times, like I said, you know, people are, people are led down these dark paths, because they've never had someone who believed in them, who was in their corner and championing, championing for them. Uh, And so they've, they've felt like they were given up on before they even had a chance to get going. And so if we, you know, we have an opportunity to build a society where, uh, where we sort of where we try to look out for each other all of us um and you know try to stop some of those people from falling through the cracks yes that's really good that's really good um yeah i think the personal treatment of those type of people like if you're in that situation it's important to know that um you're not less than human you have to forgive yourself one of the Mm -hmm. one of my common philosophies right self-love is i have to be able to forgive myself and I have to be able to unconditionally accept whoever I will be tomorrow before I know who that person is. Right. And I don't Mm -hmm. know who I'm going to be and what I'm going to do or what drastic decisions or how close I could end up in someone else's shoes. Because if similar traumatic events happen to me or I'm put in a dangerous or vulnerable situation, I could become a murderer. Right. I'm not going to say that I'm absolved of that and I'm going to have to still be able to forgive myself. Right. And if I can't forgive myself for some offense of that nature and move on uh, for the rest of my life. Um, well, actually, let me backspace that. If I can't forgive others for doing that, if I was ever in that situation, then how would I, how am I going to forgive myself? 
right? Right. If, why, if that's why not, do you it's expect not... it for yourself if you're not willing to extend it to others? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and I think, and I think that's a important philosophy to have. Like, um, well, if it works for you, does it work for everyone else? Like, right. Well, and that being is said, it just I for you? I think there's a segment of the population that uh, they they cheer and uh, they they truly desire to see those to see more executions and to see you know the more they have more of an eye for an eye sort of mentality um and Mm. you know when you look if you take it in terms of like our current administration um you know just uh the the trump administration just in the past year uh executed more federal prisoners than were executed uh since the 1960s so um and that's total from the 1960s until last year um they've blown that number out of the water and that's because you know there's uh there's a perception that among uh, their supporters that this was what people wanted was for them to sort of, they wanted to see this sort of retribution take place. And so um, it's been a really alarming trend within the federal prison system to see uh, how many uh, inmates have been executed uh, just last year by our federal Mm. government. Wow. Yeah. And so I'm, I remember, um, uh, I remember Kanye was advocating to get a particular person out of prison. And there was a lot of controversy around that and him being very mm-hmm. uh, chummy with uh, Trump during the time that that was happening. Um, I mean, and he got a little kudos for that, but um, mm-hmm. that's just one of the situations I know where uh, that case happened. I had no idea that the rate in which um, they were being put to death row was increasing. Actually, from what I was educated on, there are, I thought there were more countries leaning towards uh taking away their death row sentence and that's I, true wow that's um you know i did i did look at a couple of statistics uh before we uh started this talk so the united states is one of only four advanced democracies in the world that even allow capital punishment it's just us japan singapore and taiwan and we're the only one mm-hmm. of those four that uh uses it on a regular basis uh only 55 countries in the world even allow capital punishment um, and yeah, on the federal level, uh, we executed, I think it was one prisoner in the 1960s. And then in the 2000s, in 2001, we executed Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, um, and then mm-hmm. two other prisoners. And then nobody from 2003 until uh, 2020. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then in 2020, we executed one, two, three, four, five, six, seven eight, nine, 10 federal prisoners between uh, wow. July of 2020 and the end of the year. And these are people that committed terrible crimes. Make no mistake. These were, you know, neo-Nazis, a woman who like, uh, you know, cut the unborn baby out of a pregnant woman. Uh, you know, they were terrible people who committed terrible crimes. But I really don't think that, again, that we should use the the crime that was committed as justification to then turn around and kill that person and that's my own personal belief but there's definitely what that shows me is that there are definitely uh, a a segment of the american people who disagree with me uh and believe (laughs) that we should be executing those people yeah i have to say that i take the same stance that you do i definitely Mm -hmm. believe that people are redeemable and i think that's the vision that we fight for right um Mm -hmm. 
Well, right? when, like, we, and when I, we do dig into these comments, I expect that we'll probably hear some sort of dissenting opinions. So uh, just again, really quickly, if you left comments, we will be getting to them, uh, you know, in a, in a little while here, but uh, we're not ignoring you. We just wanted to sort of keep this conversation uh, flowing in this way uh, for a little while before we got to your comments. But if you have an opinion on this, please leave a comment and we'll be getting to those uh, in short order here. Absolutely. I'm excited to hear what you guys have to say. So um, I. I think that's what makes, yeah, I think that's what makes these, this kind of conversation the most interesting, not just us bringing our uh, opinions to the table, but that so many other people can, can contribute a snippet of that, even if it is uh, controversial, which is what, what I want to normalize, because this is a very great area that we won't make progress in until we look at it, you know, until mm -hmm. we get those box office rates of movies like Just Mercy up, right, and having people right. pay attention yeah. Um, so go ahead. Um, so one of the real benefits, sorry, my phone is ringing. Uh, one of the real benefits of uh, a platform like this is that it gives us the opportunity to hear the opinions of people that don't necessarily line up with ours. And it, uh, it facilitates a great discourse between us where uh, I can express my opinion and listen to yours and we can try to find some sort of common ground. So Absolutely. It's, it's been one of my favorite things about the stereo app is being able to to listen and understand uh, so many new perspectives. Yes. The fact that live commenters, that is that is an awesome feature for mm -hmm. a podcast like or podcast esque thing to have. That's that's very cool. Mm -hmm. um, yes. But to kind of like as we're coming to the place where we're going to start accepting comments, like just closing statements for me, mm -hmm. I believe. The most powerful incentive to I believe that's important to remind people of is that um, before you choose to take offense to the person that is doing that, look at the philosophy that empowers him. Look at the ideas that empower him and focus on those things to defeat. If if you catch the action that you're going to respond to or you the way that you're going to respond, feeding that philosophy, I, I ask you to question yourself and to challenge yourself and to really look at that. You want mm -hmm. to destroy not the person because people will die, but philosophies pass over entire kingdoms. The literally, for example, the Greek philosophy is one that Rome took and materialized to conquer the majority of the world, right? So, philosophy is an extremely powerful thing to implement someone else's doctrine of belief, right? And so, that's the thing that we want to defeat. You want to argue with love that this was the other option and it didn't mm -hmm. have to come to this ultimate conclusion. Right. And I mean, I think that just in the same way that, that knowledge uh, passes generation to generation, so does ignorance. And uh, yes. that if you have an opportunity to, uh, to really examine your worldview, that that's what you're going to pass on to your children and they're going to pass on to theirs. So when we take the opportunity to really examine what we believe and why we believe it and how we can move forward. I think that everyone, particularly as a parent, uh, you know, you look at how you can make a better world for the next generation. Uh, and a lot of that comes from, from doing the hard work of really looking inside yourself and why do I hold these beliefs and why, you know, how can I move past these things and try to find, you know, common ground and reconciliation within, you know, our American society. And, you know, in our world society in a greater sense. So, you uh, know, I think it's I think it's really important to examine why we believe the things that we do. 
Absolutely. That was that was good. This was this was good. Let's let's start to take some comments. This is really fun. Yeah, and I'm really excited to hear what you all have to say. All right. Okay, that's the end of this episode. If you like this kind of content and or just want to support me and what I'm doing, you can go to the entire video at Stereo.com slash comfort underscore free. Or you can support me on my Patreon page, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash comfort free conversations. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash comfort free conversations. Thanks and catch you next time.